Hi, welcome to the WellDoc podcast. We're medical students bringing you honest conversations with practicing physicians surrounding wellness in medicine. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we look to those in the field for direction and advice in achieving balance and wellness in our present and future lives. For this episode, we are being joined by Dr. Carrie Mew. Dr. Mew is the Division Chief of Pediatric Neurosurgery, Surgical Director of the Pediatric Epilepsy Program, Surgical Director of the Pediatric Neurovascular Program, and Surgical Co-Director of the Craniofacial Program at Westchester Medical Center. Join us as we learn more about why she loves pediatric neurosurgery and how she manages balancing her career along with her personal life and family. Hi, Dr. Mew. Thank you for joining us today for the Wellness Podcast. Something that we ask to kind of start off the conversation is, what are three good things that happened to you this week? Well, hello. Thank you for having me here. Three good things. I got to hug and snuggle my kids almost every day this week, which while that happens most weeks, still always makes me happy. I got a photographer and dress and stuff set for my daughter's bat mitzvah, which is a huge relief. And I had to submit photos for my son for his school memory book. So it was a good excuse to go through and look at old pictures from when he was a baby, which made me very happy. Oh, those are such wonderful, good things to mention. (laughs) We all all love going down memory lane. (laughs) Yes. So to follow up, what does wellness mean to you? So wellness is not something that I'd ever really sort of thought about much sort of as a, a thing. I mean, to me, I think it's sort of gratitude and appreciation you know, the things that really make me happy and make me feel whole and well are really just appreciating all the amazing, wonderful things I have in my life. To kind of expand on wellness, being a neurosurgeon, having such a busy lifestyle, how do you take a deep breath, unwind? What are some of your hobbies? How do you relax? So since I work a lot and have kids, I don't really have a lot of sort of time for outside hobbies that take up a lot of time. You know, if I'm feeling stressed at work, I come home and spend time with my kids. And that really helps me relax and de-stress a lot just to hear about their day, hear about their friends. Once they're asleep and I need time to sort of myself, I read a lot. I love reading whenever I get a chance. Sometimes if it's late at night and I can't sleep, I'll paint. I'm not like a good artist or anything, but, you know, sort of just paint for fun just to clear my mind of anything stressful. I love listening to music on weekends with the kids. We'll sometimes blare the music in the kitchen and dance around the kitchen and just sort of have fun. You know, I can't really do hobbies that involve a huge amount of time, but things that I can do on my own are very relaxing. So being a neurosurgeon, going through residency and tackling medical school, how was it starting a family, you know, finding the right time to do that? I think a lot of students really get worried about that aspect moving forward. Definitely. And there's never a good time, but I think that's true no matter what career you're in, whether you're in any field, you're going to have a difficult time finding sort of a convenient time to have kids. To me, it really was when my husband and I sort of said, you know, I'm getting older and we really feel like we want to have children and I don't want to miss the opportunity. And there's never really a good time, but to me, the most important thing is having a supportive partner, whether that's, you know, for me, my husband, whether that's, you know, a spouse, some other family member, partner, person who's really going to be there and supportive of you because it's very difficult to do it as a single parent, you're a surgeon. But with my husband, it's been fabulous. We had our first child when I was a PGY6, a six-year resident, um, our second at the end of fellowship, and our third when I was a junior attending. And none of them were easy, but they were all completely worth it. And you can have a family and be a surgeon. You just have to, you know, work hard to balance your time. And you may not have a lot of time for things like sleep or hanging out with friends outside of your kids, but 
I still have tons of enjoyable time, you know, with my kids and with my husband. And a lot of my kids' friends have parents who I love hanging out with. So I can sort of socialize with the parents while the kids are having a play date. So I still get a chance to see friends and hang out. It's just not as much time as I would if I didn't work such hours. What sort of obstacles did you face when you were trying to balance life outside of work? Whether that meant starting your family, you mentioned that obviously it was very difficult, but what were some of the challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? So the sort of physical challenge was that I didn't start trying to have kids till I was in my mid-30s. And so I ended up needing IVF for my daughter. And that was not easy while being a resident, getting all the medications and, you know, all the problems that come with it. Obviously with IVF and with infertility, there's a lot of other issues. You know, I had an ectopic and a miscarriage and all those kinds of things that happen when you're trying to get pregnant and not having an easy time. And so those were sort of the physical obstacles, but we knew that the end would be worth it. And being able to be a mom meant a lot to me. I really knew I wanted a child. And so it was worth going through the extra fatigue and the extra shock. And all of that. And then once we had my little girl, you know, my body kind of fixed itself and I had the next two kids without needing IVF. And that was sort of the first obstacle was just the physical part of being able to have a child. And it meant that it was difficult to time it. We'd been thinking in our mind, oh, if I have a baby at the beginning of research year, it'd be so convenient, you know. And of course, my body didn't feel like listening to that plan. But with, you know, my husband and family support, that was we were able to overcome that. And I've always been one of these sort of determined people, like I think a lot of surgeons are, that once we make our mind up to something, we're going to do it no matter what the obstacles are. And fortunately, with great doctors and, and support, you know, I was able to do that. In terms of being a resident and having kids, it takes time and effort, but so does everything in residency or anything in the world that you really care about. You have to put time and effort into it. So this was anything else This mattered a lot to me. So I was going to put the time and effort in that was needed. There certainly wasn't a lot of sleep, but I'm fortunate that my body can survive and be happy without a lot of sleep. And I had my incredible support from my husband. And then of course we needed to hire a nanny. So when my baby was born, we uh, were able to hire a nanny. And so I went back to work when she was about four weeks old. And that way we had, you know, someone who I knew and I'd gotten to know her for a couple months before she came and trust her and know that, you know, she would be good to my baby girl when I was at work. To kind of shift gears a little, I want to talk a little bit more about you being a woman in the field of neurosurgery, which a lot of us know tends to be very male dominated. <laughs> Some question that a lot of medical students have is, have you ever faced the toxic surgery stereotype? And, it, and if you have, we would love to hear a little bit more about your experience. So I've been lucky that I haven't faced very much of it. There definitely have been individual comments now and then. I know when I was interviewing for neurosurgery residency, there was only one other woman who I ran into a lot on the neurosurgery interview trail. This was a long time ago. And at one of the interviews, I won't say which hospital, at one of the interviews, one of the older sort of private practice surgeons who works with the group came wandering around the interview room and looking at all of the candidates. And I was the only woman there at the time. And he came up to me and he goes, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm interviewing for neurosurgery. And I was, of course, a med student, so I was far too shy to say the things I would say nowadays. And he looks at me and he goes, no one's ever going to take you seriously. You're too pretty to be a neurosurgeon. And I don't mean that in a good way. Even if you don't have a pink stethoscope, no one's ever going to think you're their doctor. And I just sort of looked at him and said, I don't plan to have a pink stethoscope, sir. And I think I can convince them that I can be a good surgeon. And he just sort of wandered away. And it was funny because a few minutes after that, <laughs> I was interviewing with the chair of the program who made a comment that they can't keep women in the program and he doesn't know why. And I kept thinking, have you met the guy down the hall? Um, so, I mean, but that was good that he approached me at the interview because I knew right away not to rank that place. So, you know, I've been lucky that there have been very few of those kinds of comments. 
most of the time when you get comments, it's not intended to be insulting. It's patients who make a comment, you know, after I've talked to them for half an hour about the surgery and the risks and everything I'm going to do. And they're like, so when are we going to meet the doctor? It's those kinds of not intentionally insulting, just a little oblivious kinds of comments. And those I don't let get to me because I know the person didn't mean it insulting. All of us have biases we come into things with, and you have to realize it's not intentional most of the time. And I don't think I've really had to face a lot of the intentional toxicity that I was worried I was going to have to face that the stereotypes talk about. The work environments I've been in have been very supportive. In med school, I had fabulous neurosurgeons to look up to. The neurosurgery lab I worked in, the brain tumor lab I worked in at Columbia was very supportive. There weren't any female attendings there at the time, but I didn't really notice that in the sense that it it didn't feel like, oh, well, women aren't here. No, they were very supportive. They were perfectly happy to have me in the lab. They were very supportive. They, you know, helped me find a residency I would really like. Um, And then residency, I just adored. The surgeons I worked with were fabulous and smart. And I was actually very lucky. I was at Emory. And that's a place where there's a Dr. Susie Tyndall was one of the first female neurosurgeons decades ago. And she had trained a few of the people who were my attendings when I was at Emory. So they had complete and total respect for her. And it never occurred to them that a woman shouldn't be a neurosurgeon because they trained under an incredibly strong, talented neurosurgeon woman. Um, So they treated me like all the other residents and were very supportive and gave me an incredible education. And then my first job, I was at Duke for eight years before I came here to Westchester Medical Center. And again, there there was one attending there who sometimes made comments that made me realize he was a little bit older and more old school, but I didn't have to interact with him very often. And it didn't affect me directly. Whenever he'd say something that I didn't appreciate, I realized it looked badly for him, not for me. And I really haven't had to deal with anything that really affected me in a a negative way, sort of on a day-to-day basis. And then when I decided it was time to leave Duke and I started looking at jobs elsewhere, I got lots of terrific offers and, you know, there was no issue of being a woman or not. You know, people knew I was a good surgeon and start an epilepsy program someplace and people wanted me for that and they didn't seem to care if I was female or not. Something we're all interested in knowing is what made you pick the field of neurosurgery? What kind of drew you to that path? Because it's a very, it's a very <laughs> long journey. So you really have to be committed and know you really want it. So yes. I would love to hear that story. <laughs> sure. So when I applied to med school, I just assumed I'd be a pediatrician because that's the only kind of doctor I'd ever really met at that point. I, there were no doctors in my family. I'd never met a surgeon up till the point that I was interviewing for med schools. And then on the interview trail, when I was at uh, one of the interviews, I had my name tag and the last name Mew is a relatively you know, unusual last name. And one of the cardiac surgeons saw me interview, um, I think it was at either USC or UCLA, and he asked if I knew Bob Mew, who's my dad, and they'd known each other decades earlier. So he asked me if I wanted to come watch him operate after the interview ended. And I watched the coolest heart surgery I'd ever seen. He did this big bypass and he was putting all these vessels together and it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And right there and then it was obvious I had to be a surgeon because it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. During med school, they allow uh, medical students to go on transplant harvests um, to help out the team. And my first year of med school, I was able to go with the cardiac transplant team to get a child's heart and to bring it back to a child in New York. And watching that transplant, you know, you realize that from this horrible sadness of a child dying, which is this terrible, terrible thing, 
you can bring life to someone else, someone else who would have died, you can save their life from it. And it was just this awe-inspiring, beautiful thing. And so I was sure I wanted to be a heart transplant surgeon. And so I worked, you know, in a cardiac lab at Columbia, actually with Dr. Oz before he got famous and um, did, you know, worked on cardiac stuff. And I was sure that's what I was going to do with my career. And then third year of med school, we had to rotate through neurosurgery for a week. And throughout college and for a year between college and med school, I'd done cancer research. And that was the only thing I didn't love about cardiac surgery was that there aren't a lot of cardiac cancers. There's rhabdos, but for the most part, there's not a lot of cancer research in cardiac transplant. And with neurosurgery, suddenly I saw this field where the surgeries were just as awe-inspiring and beautiful and amazing as you know any other surgery I'd ever seen. And I could also study brain tumors, um, which at the time I thought is really what I wanted to do. And so I decided to, I was hesitant about changing my life's plan based on a one-week rotation. So I decided to work in the brain tumor lab at Columbia for a year in order to be sure that that's what I actually wanted and that would actually make me happy. And so I did that and I hung out with the neurosurgery residents and operated with them as much as I could, watch them operate. I didn't get to do anything at the time. Watch them operate as much as I could and got to know the patients and the families and just fell in love with it. It was this amazing, you know, endorphin rush in the OR where 12 hours pass and you feel like it's been five minutes and you can see this huge change in patients' lives. And it's just this amazing thing. I mean, and so I thought at the beginning of residency that I would probably end up doing neuro-oncology, brain tumor surgery. And then I saw functional neurosurgery, which is like movement disorders and epilepsy during residency and was just awed by it. I mean, there were things like one of the DBSs I did as a, I think, second year resident, this big guy, six foot something, very macho, you know, this strong, you know, doesn't show emotion kind of guy. He's in the operating room. And during DBS surgeries, um, patients are awake um, during the surgery. So you can be asking them questions and testing them. And you ask them things like finding their names and asking questions and seeing how they move. And in the middle of the surgery, as we're stimulating, he starts bawling, just crying and crying. And we're like, oh gosh, what happened? And he goes, that's the first time I've been able to write my name in 10 years. And it was just amazing that in surgery, in that instant, you can make this amazing change for someone that quickly. And it was just, again, it was one of those experiences that you just feel like this is what I need to be doing. I need to do these things where I can make this kind of change for people. I still love peds. I would much rather hang out with kids all day than with adults. And so I do peds epilepsy surgery for the most part, which is sort of peds functional surgery where you could try to treat seizures. And I do all sorts of peds neurosurgery too, you know, Chiari's and brain tumors and things, but there are so much about the field that is just awe-inspiring on a daily basis. I mean, the kids you can help, the kids you can fix their quality of life, you can give them 80 years of, you know, better life than you otherwise would have had. And it's, it's, it's something that every day reminds me I picked the right specialty. That is absolutely incredible. Like while you're performing surgery, you can actually see the results right then and there and make that instantaneous difference in the person's life. That is so inspirational. I had no idea that happened. And that's actually one of the things I love about surgery is that sort of instant gratification. I mean, yes, it takes hours and hours to do the surgery, but if you have a brain tumor, you know, you can take it out. You can see at the beginning of the case is a tumor in the brain. At the end of the case, you take it out, you can see the brain without the tumor. And it's this sort of immediate you know, gratification of, wow, I accomplished something that's actually going to help somebody. And when you see the patient wake up after surgery and they're talking and they're moving and you get that post-op picture that shows that it looks gorgeous, it's sort of this just fun reward every day being able to see that. 
So for students that are still in medical school who are undecided about their specialty, we're exposed to so many different specialties. We go back and forth all the time. What sort of advice do you have to help them narrow down the options for them based on what you've experienced? See as much as you can. Um, spend time with doctors and fields that interest you and really listen to what feels right for you, not what you think people's expectations are or what your preconceived notions were. I had never expected to go into a surgical field or neurosurgery when I was thinking about med school. And even the first couple of years of med school, neurosurgery didn't occur to me because I sort of had this stereotype in my head of the TV show neurosurgeon, the you know old white guy who's mean and all that kind of stuff. And it's not like that. You know, the preconceived notions of stereotypes aren't real. And even if they are for some people, they certainly don't have to be for everyone. You know, really do what feels right for you. There are some people who love being in the operating room all day and some people who hate it. And an hour into the case, they're exhausted and hot and tired and want to sit down, in which case surgery is not for you. You know, if you're someone who needs eight hours of sleep a night, don't be a trauma surgeon. There are, there are certain you know, things you can look at the lifestyle and realize this is or isn't going to make me happy. Even if everyone in your family is in a certain specialty and expects you to go into that specialty, only do it if it's really what excites you. You know, if you're going to get up in the middle of the night, you know, Friday night, I had to, you know, go in at midnight and take, leave my family, go into the hospital, you know, take care of a kid. If I didn't love what I was doing and know that I was actually helping that child and saving that family, I wouldn't want to go in and do that at midnight when I could be home in bed or snuggling my kids. So in any field of medicine, you're going to get calls at night. You're going to get calls at times when it's not convenient. So if you don't love what you do, you're going to be miserable and resent it. I mean, yeah, there are times I'm exhausted and times I don't want to get a bed or times when I really wish the operating room would start at 9 a.m. instead of 7. But I love what I do enough that it's worth it, you know? And so, you know, really listen to what calls to you when you're picking your field and your specialty. And you can change your mind. It's okay. I mean, I started off doing general peds neurosurge thinking I was going to do tumors and then fell in love with epilepsy. So you can make tweaks. And I know people, even after they started a year of residency, one of the residents I trained with had done a year or two of ENT. And while he was on ENT rotations, realized he loved the cases he did with the neurosurgeons and he switched to neurosurgery. I know orthopedic surgeons who've done the same thing and switched to neurosurgery. And so you can you're not locked into something. Don't feel like, oh, I made this choice. I hate it and I'm miserable, but I'm stuck with it forever. You can always change your mind and switch within within surgical fields or within medical fields and not feel like you are stuck with something that you don't enjoy. I feel like a lot of us, we have the misconception that we're locked in after medical school, we're locked into a certain residency, but we're free to picking and choosing what feels right. Because yeah. if you're waking up in the middle of the night to go do surgery, it has to be something that you really love, which clearly you do. Exactly. And it's not easy to switch, but it's definitely doable. And if you're in something and you realize it's the wrong choice, put the effort in, talk to people, get people to help you, and you'll be able to switch if you yeah, need to. Yeah, it's such a long-term commitment. You have to make sure you can do it for a very long time. So you have to make sure you love it. Yeah. Um, so speaking of um, epilepsy and pediatric uh, neurosurgery, I do want to talk about the difficulties of treating pediatric patients in such a in, in such a space because they're dealing with mm -hmm. um, life threatening conditions. Can you talk a little bit about some of the difficult cases that you've experienced, how you've overcome that mentally, and also whenever you're ready, like the good cases, the most rewarding and sure. inspiring ones. Um, so I think it's important to recognize that you can't save everyone. You know, there are some patients who are going to come in in a condition that's simply not compatible with life, that's something you simply cannot save, and that it's not 
your fault if you can't save them. Um, I mean, I very vividly remember, you know, some of the kids who've come in after bad car accidents. Little girl, kindergartner, first day of kindergarten, her, she saw her dad park across the street and she went running across the street to tell her daddy what her first day of kindergarten was like and was hit by a car. And he just kept shouting her name and shouting her name in the emergency room and in the hospital because he kept imagining her running towards him and he couldn't get to her in time. And I mean, there was nothing we could physically do to help her. And so at that point, what you have to do is be there for the family. You have to make sure the family knows that you care about them, you care about their child, that, you know, you would do anything in the world to help their child, that if anything could be done, you're doing it so that they don't feel like someone gave up on their baby at the end. Um, you have to make sure they know that they and their child were cared about and loved and that they didn't fail their child. They didn't miss something. They didn't wait too long to bring them. There's, they didn't bring them to the wrong place. They didn't do anything. You have to let them know that that anything possible that could have been done was being done and that their child was cared about and to try to give them as peaceful and loving an end as possible. Um, and obviously with a young child, that's difficult. That's painful. It hurts all of us. I mean, there are some of those kids I'm going to remember forever, but I feel like you can still give something to the family by letting them know you cared. You know, it wasn't just that they came in and they were a number and you wrote them off. It was, you know, you examined, you checked, you talked to other people, you did absolutely anything and everything you could. And then when there was nothing else to do, you gave support and love to the family. And, and you take part of that home. I mean, in the sense that 12-year-old was still in a booster seat until earlier this year. My 10-year-old just got out of the high back booster, but is still in a booster seat. And my eight-year-old staying in the high back booster until he absolutely does not fit. You know, so you you take some of those things away to try to get some control. I mean, I know I can't control everything, but I've also told my kids there's no way they're sitting in the front seat of my car until they're like driving and <laughs> that they will never, ever cross the street except at crosswalks after looking both ways, holding the hand of someone taller than them. <laughs> um, but you also know that you can't control everything, you know, and there are some kids I simply can't fix. And so you just have to let the family know you love them and care about them. I mean, there's been a couple brain tumor kids. There was one little baby who had this horrible brain tumor. His parents had done IVF for almost a decade to have him. They finally had him, their one baby, their miracle baby. And at a few months old, he had a giant brain tumor that was not salvageable. You know, we operated multiple times. He had every treatment that doctors know how to give and he still passed. And being able to be there with his mom, who I developed a strong relationship with, you know, for the months that he was ill and making sure that she knew that we loved him and we cared about her and the family. And so she knew she had support and care. I think that's just as important for the babies who are really sick. Even if you can't physically fix them, you can at least let the family know that emotionally people cared about their baby. It's really beautiful that, that you're there for the patient, the child, as well as the family. So the whole family is your patient. Oh, yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. For all my kids, the, the family, that's one of the things I love about peds is you really sort of get to know the whole family. And even the good ones, you know, the good stories I love. I have so many of my amazing kids who've done so well. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the epilepsy. I love how, I, I love how cheerful you get. <laughs> I could really tell you love what I you love do. I love my kids. I love their patients. Um, yeah. Some of them are so cute. There was this one little baby who was a little over a year old um, when we met him and he'd been seizing every day since he was about six weeks old. And 
his development was delayed, obviously, because he was seizing every day. And so he couldn't really, you know, walk. He was a little over a year. He couldn't walk yet. He could barely stand. He wasn't really talking. And we did a couple surgeries, one where you put electrodes in to figure out where the seizures are coming from. Um, and then one where you go in and take out the area that's causing the seizures. And he did really well. And they came back to my clinic, um, I guess, for about the three-month post-op visit. And his mom was giving me a huge hug and crying, saying, this is, he'd been seizure-free since surgery. And this is the life they had hoped for their baby when they had him. He was walking now. He was learning to talk. They knew he was going to be able to develop. They could go to restaurants now. They could go out. He was going to be able to go to school now. This was, you know, every parent has hopes, you know, for their child before the child's born and for the first few months. And at about six weeks old, their hopes sort of got ruined that their baby wasn't going to be able to have the healthy, typical life they wanted him to have. And now, you know, a few months after surgery, suddenly they were optimistic and hopeful and thrilled that their baby was going to be able to have that. Every parent wants to give their kid a good, happy life. And it's so stressful for parents whose kids have epilepsy that they feel like they can't give that to their child. And so to be able to stop his seizures meant that they could give that to him. They could give him the happy, typical go to school, learn how to walk and talk and drive and go to prom and do all those things that you can't do if you can't walk and talk. Um, and so being able, that's why I love epilepsy on little kids. If you fix them when they're really young, because they can get that development back a lot of them, not always, but a lot of them can get that development back. Once someone's past puberty, it's harder to get a lot of the development that they never got. Um, and so being able to treat kids when they're young, you know, obviously not all of them. Some of them have really severe genetic issues or other things that you really can't fix a lot of that. But a lot of those kids, if you can stop their seizures, they really can make huge developmental improvements. Um, which is just so rewarding to be able to see over time, you know. And then there's been a bunch of other kids, you know, kids with brain tumors. It's the opposite. It's not that the family's accustomed to their child being sick. It's that they're accustomed to their child being perfectly normal and well. And then suddenly they're hit with this sledgehammer of, oh my God, my child has a brain tumor. And suddenly it's this horrible fear of your perfectly healthy, amazing, wonderful child suddenly has a brain tumor and is never going to be normal again. And you're terrified of that. So being able to take out their tumor and and see them do well after surgery and show them the post-op MRI that shows, you know, with the blob and without the blob and how much, you know, how exciting it is to not have that in their child anymore. And yeah, they may still need chemo radiation potentially, or they may need other treatments or at least get MRIs forever. But now you sort of have allowed the family to sort of come back together again with this you know, optimism for the future, which to me, that's so important is to try to give families hope for the yeah, future. I, I think the beautiful thing about, well, patients as a whole, but especially kids, is they're so incredibly resilient. You know, fixing their seizures, they, they can go back to being kids and, you know, developing almost exponentially. I think that's really wonderful what you're doing. It's so, so, so beautiful. And I think sometimes when um, something happens with their kids, parents, I think, partly blame themselves for whatever might have happened, even though they don't have any control over that. Yeah. So you're kind of giving them back um, that hope and alleviating the fact that they they did something wrong. So absolutely incredible. And that's an important point, especially for the tiny babies who come in, is really having to reassure, usually the mom especially, that it's not her fault. Even kids are born with spina bifida and things that are congenital, you know, moms very often want to blame themselves. Was, oh, well, I had a glass of wine before I knew I was pregnant, or I 
you know, did, you know, went in a hot tub at one point when I was a month pregnant and there are studies that show that heat can increase the risk or I had a cold. If I hadn't gone to that party and gotten that cold and gotten sick, maybe my baby wouldn't have sick. And you have to, they're going to have these voices in their head. And so you really have to reassure them this is not their fault. You know, you can be the absolutely, you know, best possible pregnant woman or mom or dad or anyone and follow all the medical guidelines and your child can still get sick. And so it's not someone's fault. And that's a lot of sort of important to reassure parents, especially of young babies, that they didn't do anything wrong. You, you briefly mentioned that I wanted to kind of know a little more. What specifically led you to epilep- treating epilepsy? The patients, um, you know, really seeing the kids. Uh, the surgeries are really fun. I, you know, love the engineering side and the technical side of all the different toys and tools that we get to use in the operating room and in functional neurosurgery. There's all these very cool neurostimulators that you can use if you can't take out the area of the brain that's causing seizures. You can actually put a stimulator into that section of the brain to try to slow down, decrease seizures. There are uh, very cool robots that we use in surgery to place the electrodes. Um, Laser ablation is this awesome little very thin laser fiber you can feed in under MRI guidance to burn the area where the seizures are coming from or sometimes for tumors to burn the tumor instead of having to do an open surgery. Um, So the technical aspects of the surgery are just fun. And I love the patients. I love the families. I love being able to watch these kids grow up. You know, a lot of the other surgeries you do, like Chiari malformations, for instance, you see the child a couple times, you know, before surgery, you treat them, they get better, and then they go off to their life. And that's wonderful. They live their own happy life. They don't have to see me again because they're fine. The epilepsy kids, you generally will sort of see forever. Um, you know, even after I've fixed their seizures, hopefully, um, they still follow with the neurologists who I talk to on a daily basis. So we still get to keep up with the kids and see how they're doing. And a lot of them, you can make the seizures better, but not cure them. You can go from seizures every single day to seizures once a month or something, which is much more tolerable, much better quality of life, but they're still having some seizures. And so a lot of those families I'll still keep in touch with and talk to. And sometimes down the road, you'll do another procedure. Some of the kids with genetic issues like tuberous sclerosis have lots of tumors or tubers, little growths around the brain. And so, you know, a few years, you'll do one surgery, which treats their seizures for a couple of years, and then another tuber takes over and starts seizing. And so you have to do another procedure down the road. And so a lot of the families, you sort of get to know and watch them grow up and, and you know, see them change over time. And I just, I, I know I like that dynamic. I like being with the families and watching the kids grow up um, and getting to do the really fun surgeries. That's so interesting. I feel like uh, a lot of us don't immediately think of surgery as longitudinal care. We think, uh, oh, we treat patients, we make them better, and then we don't see them again. But it's really interesting to hear that specifically your specialty, you really do treat the patient throughout their entire life. I think that's a really great balance between both. And the brain tumor kids too, you know, they'll see the neuro-oncologist, but we have a combined clinic with the neuro-oncologist. So it's a beginning, you know, like every three months for the first year after that, it may just be once a year or once every couple of years, but you're still checking in on them when they have their MRIs. Would you say there's a lot of collaboration between different specialties? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, the surgeries I have coming up this week, one of them is going to be with a plastic surgeon because it's a, a lesion on the skull and I want to make sure the baby looks cute afterwards. Um, one of them is with an ENT surgeon because it's a cellar tumor, which means we go up through the nose. So the ENT surgeon gets us through the sinus to get up to the nose so I can take out the tumor. My uh, kids with epilepsy, I work very closely with the neurologists. We have weekly conferences at least um, to discuss all the kids and have multidisciplinary conference with the neuroradiologist, the neuropsychologist, the epileptologists, um, and me and all the PAs and MPs who help out. Um, 
the my partner does a lot of peripheral nerve surgery so he works with the neurologist and with the orthopedic doctors and some plastic surgeons there's lots of different fields we work with very closely all the time what does your typical day look like for your work day and then your off day uh so starting with the work week um each day of the week is a little bit different mondays are a clinic day so usually i'll round in the morning and then i have clinic from like nine to five and then i usually spend several hours that evening signing notes signing notes is by far the worst part of my job if I could just see patients and operate and never have to sign notes, I would be a very happy person. <laughs> but I'm always like a month behind in signing my notes. It's horrible. There's just so many. Um, but so Monday nights, I try desperately to catch up on some of the notes I haven't signed. Um, Tuesdays is an, uh, Tuesday and Thursday are both operative days. Um, so go in in the morning, operate. Mondays, I often will miss dinner with the kids because I need a day to sort of catch up on as much paperwork as I can. And I used to try to spread it out among all days. And then I would end up missing dinner a lot and getting home at like eight o'clock when the, the younger ones are asleep. So now Mondays, I basically try to just stay at the hospital for hours and try to get lots and lots done and get stuff set up for the whole rest of the week. And then that way, I'm usually home for dinner the entire rest of the week, usually, unless I'm on call. And so Tuesday and Thursday, I operate um, most of the day, usually done with cases by three-ish or so four-ish, have a couple hours to um, do um, research, round, talk to families. A lot of times you need family uh, meetings with the ICU or the neurologists or other teams. So we'll often do those then. Um, Wednesdays is a conference day. We have epilepsy conference at seven. Then we have department conferences for neurosurgery most of the rest of the day. And then from one to five, I have clinic on Wednesdays, but those are specialty clinics. So neuro-oncology clinic, craniofacial clinic, some of those clinics with other teams. Thursday, we said was OR. Friday is my academic day. So um, research, uh, papers, all sorts of things with med students or all the other stuff I have to do, plus administrative things, all the various committees I'm on. The ILEA is the International League Against Epilepsy, the PED section uh, for neurosurgery, all those different groups I'm on. I try to fit all that stuff on on Fridays when I can um, or Tuesday, Thursday nights. Weekends or days off, um, I'm on call used to be two to three weekends a month. Now it's usually one weekend a month, most of the time, sometimes two a month. Um, and those weekends, usually I'm in and out of the hospital a lot. But the other weekends that I'm not on call, I'll go in and round for an hour or so just to see my post-ops or my families, but try not to spend the whole day there. Um, and then come home and spend the time with my kids. Saturdays, before the pandemic, we used to go to synagogue a lot Saturday mornings. Now we don't really go as much. Um, but then we'll do activities. You know, my kids um, will have baseball or soccer or sometimes both at once overlapping, trying to drive back and forth between the two fields. Play dates usually on Sundays with friends, um, have people come over to the house and play in the backyard or take the kids to their friends' houses. Um, and that usually ends up sort of being a social time for me often because I really like the moms of a lot of my kids' friends. So we'll kind of hang out and chat while the kids are playing. Sometimes trying to get work done. Um, a lot of times I have things that I haven't caught up on. I usually try to do those late at night after the kids are asleep, but sometimes during the day if the kids are doing other activities. Um, my daughter's in the school place, so she'll have rehearsal. We'll drop her off at that. Um, it's a lot of just being a mom, driving the kids places, <laughs> um, trying to spend some time with my husband. Um, he and I don't sort of go out as much as we'd like, but we're hoping that once everything calms down pandemic-wise, we may actually be able to go out on you know a dinner date, just the two of us, which would be nice. <laughs> um, you know, read at night sometimes or crossword puzzles, you know, sometimes during the day, if there's no play dates, I'll play board games with the kids. My eight year old really likes Monopoly and things like that, or jigsaw puzzles. Um, sort of just the average being a mom and a homebody. 
Can I just say thank you for being a woman in medicine that people can look up to because you're doing absolutely like everything <laughs> and balancing it all somehow. It, your schedule is so packed, so full, and you're still managing to spend time with your husband, spend time with your kids. Um, <laughs> where's your self-care? What, what sort of self-care So, I mean, I'm do? happy with my kids, you know? I, I'm happy home. I talk to friends. We just moved to New York a few months prior to the pandemic, so I don't know that many people in New York, unfortunately, except for a few of my kids' friends' moms. Um, but I still am really close to friends, you know, that I've known my whole life, you know, friends from high school, friends from college. And we, you know, Zoom with each other, talk to each other on the phone, you know, a lot. Before the pandemic, you know, a weekend or two a year, we would spend time together, just us, go to a spa or something. I mean, that's why when you asked at the beginning about wellness, like it's not really something I've ever put thought into. I mean, granted, I think, you know, I mean, I'm 47. I feel like, you know, when I was your age, people didn't have the term wellness or self-care. I don't feel like that was a thing I ever thought about. I feel like I'm just happy most of the time. So I haven't had to put a lot of thought into it. It's sort of integrated into your life. Yeah, I mean, I'm just so lucky. The thing is, I, I have so much to be grateful for every day. You know, I mean, I've got an amazing family. I've got friends I've had since I was a kid who I absolutely adore. I've got you know, healthy children who, thank God, have not had to have significant time in the hospital. I, you know, have a safe home and wonderful schools for my kids and a job I love. I kind of, I haven't had to think consciously about self-care stuff. I mean, during the height of the pandemic, when I was taking a lot of adult call and I was super stressed, I did find myself painting more at 1 a.m. when I couldn't turn my brain off to go to sleep. So I guess that's what I would say I do to calm down or read, you know, find a book that I haven't read in forever that I absolutely love and just dive into it and stress just fades away because you think about someone else's life. I don't know. I think just being grateful every night, you know, every night when I put my kids to bed, we recite the things we're thankful for. And it, I feel like that is the self-care I need because I'm appreciating everything I've got, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, you're practicing gratitude and you're you know, you have an amazing support system and a wonderful job you love. Those are all part of wellness. <laughs> we will be wrapping up very soon. Um, two other questions I wanted to ask. Uh -huh. What advice would you give to your younger self? Um, maybe, I mean, I love the way things have turned out, but maybe I would say start trying to have kids younger so I don't have to deal with the whole IVF struggle. Um, I think a lot of us, especially I was older when I started med school because I had done other things for a couple of years first. And then, you know, I took time off again during med school. So I was a little bit older than most residents. And I sort of, I think, felt like as a junior resident, I couldn't have kids because my hours were so long. And I think it may be if I had tried having kids a couple of years earlier, I wouldn't have had to deal with the whole IVF thing. I mean, I have the most amazing kids on the planet, so I love the way things turned out. But I mean, maybe I would have said, you know, do the, the things that really matter to me, like having a family, prioritize that earlier instead of waiting for a good time because a good time is not going to come. And otherwise, I mean, I've always been a confident person in the sense that I know I'm not good at everything, but the things I am good at, I know I'm good at. I think I had that most of my life, but I definitely would have reinforced that to myself that, and I think that's important for everyone, be confident. None of us are perfect at everything. And I acknowledge that I can learn a lot from so many people. Everybody I meet has things they can teach me. And so think of the things you're really good at and be confident with that and understand that some people are going to be better than you at other things. And that's okay. You know, compete with yourself, be the best, smartest, hardest working version of yourself. And, 
you know, as long as you've achieved that, you'll be fine. I'm going to take that advice personally. (laughs) Okay. Was there anything that um, I didn't get a chance to ask that might be helpful to medical students listening to this? Um, Keep your mind open. Uh, Look at all the different fields out there until one really appeals to you. Um, Even if you think you've decided what you want to do, if something else appeals to you, look into it. You know, don't just say, oh, that's not for me. Um, Don't pay attention to the stereotypes. You know, I mean, I'm probably not the average stereotype of, you know, a neurosurgeon, but I'm successful and happy and love what I do. And if something appeals to you, do it, you know, and if you don't know, then look into it, spend time, shadow other surgeons, see what their day is like. So you can see if it's something that you would actually enjoy doing um, rather than just sort of thinking what the stereotype is. And then if people tell you not to do it, you know, see if that's really what you should be listening to or not. I was just talking to one of the med students yesterday who said that people tried talking her out of neurosurgery because they didn't think that it would be good for her. But they weren't neurosurgeons. They had no idea what neurosurgery is like. So take it with a grain of salt. People may not know when they tell you to do or not do something because they may not have enough knowledge about it or about you (laughs) to know what would actually work for you. Thank you so much, Dr. Mio, um, for all the wonderful advice. And for being an inspiration to all the medical students and residents um, under you, <laughs> it, really is, it, it really is incredible how you're breaking all the stereotypes and we can only wish we could be like you. And well, That's very sweet. I had a lot of people who, you know, were here before me, lots of wonderful female neurosurgeon well models who paved the way and made it a lot easier by the time I came along. So it's really them that we should have gratitude to. Well, thank you so much for being on the Wellness Podcast. But thank you for having me. Thank you again, Dr. Mew, for that great discussion. We hope that this episode has got you thinking about the importance of a healthy work-life balance and ways to incorporate this into your career. We'd like to give a huge shout out to Wilson Zhang for his awesome audio editing skills, and we'll see you next month.